We all need a shot of encouragement to keep us going. A new beginning with Greg Laurie is sure to help in your journey of faith. Hear it twice daily. Details at vision.org.au. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. And so historians note that the Jesus movement, these people became a leading force in an empire that was falling apart. You think our world is bad today? You think we're in trouble? You think we're in turmoil? We're a walk in the park compared to first century Rome. The family was breaking down. The social structure was disintegrating. Law and order were eroding. Basic moral values were drifting by the wayside. Does that remind you of any place? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me wanna dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will break this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and on today with Jeff Vines, the message is about a dynamic force called Christianity. Pastor Jeff begins by asking some questions about today's society and the role our faith system is seen to play in it. Looking back at the great awakening of the first believers, the influence they had over their communities and the impact their actions had on our current world, it's all evidence of a dynamic force. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now. He's in Acts chapter 1. What we're going to do is we're going to start a little series in the book of Acts. Acts is a book that is written about the happenings of the first church, how it all got started. So I want you to turn to Acts 1. If you're new and you say, well, I don't have a Bible, no worries. It's on the screen. Every passage I read will be on the screen, Acts chapter 1. While we're doing that, just want to ask you some questions to get you motivated. Don't answer them out loud. Please don't do that because some of them are trick questions sometimes. Sometimes, not these, but sometimes. And then, you know, you don't want to say something you, you wish you could take back. So just in your head, answer these. Here's question one. Do you think the Western world is getting more moral or less moral? <laughs> Question two, do you think our nation is divided? Some of you just cannot resist, can you? <laughs> Question three, do you think the church is having a positive impact on the Western world? Question four, if you were to ask most irreligious people in the West to explain Christianity, and what it's about, what do you think they would say? By irreligious, I mean people who don't go to church, who don't claim any faith, not necessarily atheists, but they just don't claim any faith. If you were to ask them to explain Christianity, what do you think they would say? And do you think they would say things like this? Well, Christianity is about rules and regulations. It's about bigotry and homophobia and anti-sex. It's about political conservatism and anti-socialism. It's about anti-abortion and anti-fun. <laughs> Am I close? You think I'm close? Just out of curiosity? You think that's... Question five. If you were to ask religious people, now by religious people, I mean people who claim to be a certain faith, maybe go to church or synagogue or something else, uh, 
Christmas and Easter at least, maybe a couple more times a year, if you were to ask religious people in the West to explain what Christianity is all about, what do you think they would say? And do you think they would say things like this? Well, Christianity is about being good. It's about helping others. It's about doing good things, going to church, praying, and things like that. Question six, do you agree with this explanation of Christianity? That it's about being a good person, helping others. It's about doing good things, going to church, praying, and things like that. Which leads me to the seventh question and the most important one. How many of you familiar are familiar with the Great Awakening? In the middle of the 18th century, both in Britain and in France, there are great social inequities. And the inequities between the rich and poor were quite appalling. It's the beginning of the, uh, the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution. So that these inequities served as a powder keg getting ready to explode. And it was building and building and building in both France and in Britain. And in France, it exploded. And the French Revolution was incredibly gory, bloody, horrific. In fact, I remember uh, preparing for a college prep class, literature class in high school before I went to college, and one of the forced readings was Tale of Two Cities. The French Revolution was indeed bloody and ruthless. However, even though the same exact things were happening in Britain, same issues, same pressure, same uh, inequities between the rich and the poor, a powder keg getting ready to explode, it didn't explode. In fact, something else happened that brought peace and harmony and dramatic social change. In fact, historians now concede that what happened in Britain should have happened in France, but didn't. Instead of a bloodied revolution, there was a miracle that occurred called the Great Awakening. And in the first few decades of this Great Awakening, masses of people, I mean, some people estimate one-fifth of the entire population of the British Isles found themselves captivated by the message of Jesus Christ and swept up into the churches. This catalyzed a social healing that multiplied over the next few decades. The rich became generous and fair with their resources because greed always surrenders to generosity at the point of conversion. But the poor also received the power and the truth that moved them towards self-discipline, hard work, and the rejection of entitlement. Wow! It was like cold air meeting hot air, giving a thunderous applause. Both the rich and the poor had a heart for one another. Social transformation came about because of this great awakening. In fact, it was the Christian converts responsible for putting an end to the slave trade in Europe. A guy by the name of William Wilberforce partnered together with his friend John Newton. And they lobbied the British Parliament year after year, explaining that African slaves were being abused and tortured and mistreated year after year, till finally Parliament passed a bill, the abolition of the slave, the abolition of the slave trade. In fact, I think that you, most of you know that the song Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And John Newton, in his early life, was a ship slave master. He controlled the ships that, that housed and transported these slaves from Africa into Europe. He came to the conclusion that what he was doing was so horrific 
but he couldn't forgive himself. Someone introduced him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was so overwhelmed with the reality that he could be forgiven for these atrocities that he was not able to rest until he could express himself in song. And he wrote the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The great awakening gathered steam. The relationships between labor and capital improved. Child labor laws were reformed. There was an increase in literacy because there was a respect for all social classes of people. The elderly were valued and respected. Widows and orphans were taken care of. All because both the hearts of the rich and the poor were transformed by this thing called the gospel. Now here's what's interesting. Many historians today believe that the only thing that's going to save our Western society from all this turmoil is, a, is another great awakening. Something that happens where the hearts of people are changed away from self-aggrandizing, entitlement, narcissistic spirit to a heart of grace and generosity and respect for all. The problem is, and I've been having a, a fantastic time reading this over the past month, the, 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 the interesting thing is that historians also know and agree that there's only one place we can go in history to be able to understand how it is that a group of people can completely and utterly remake one of the strongest, most powerful civilizations in the world, known to man. That we would have to go all the way back to the first awakening, where 2,000 years ago, there was a tiny group of peasants and slaves who believed that Jesus Christ was the pre-existing Son of God, come to earth, became flesh, died and rose again on the third day, this little group in history had no political power, no educational power, no cultural power, no economic power. Yet within two centuries, it swept up millions of people within the Roman Empire into a joy and peace that they had not previously discovered. And so historians note that the Jesus movement, these people became a leading force in an empire that was falling apart. You think our world is bad today? You think we're in trouble? You think we're in turmoil? We're a walk in the park compared to first century Rome. The family was breaking down. The social structure was disintegrating. Law and order were eroding. The basic moral values were drifting by the wayside. Does that remind you of any place? Now multiply it by about 100,000 times and you've got first century Rome. And yet the followers of Jesus so infiltrated Roman society with the message and the teachings of Jesus that by the third century, the emperor had to declare and acknowledge that Rome had become a Christian society. Unity, equality, compassion for all, regardless of name, race, or economic status, became commonplace. But again, there's irony here because historians know there's only one historical document that we have in our possession written by an eyewitness of these accounts. And his name is Dr. Luke, who wrote a book in the Bible called Acts. It is an ancient text that tells us the rest of the story of what happened after Jesus suffered and died and resurrected. And in this book, historians agree that we're able to see why this little group of people in the first awakening were able to impact their society, to totally transform it. And you discover two things. One, you discover the essence of original Christianity, and you also discover why it had the power to transform individual lives, communities, and cultures. What was so powerful about the first great awakening that continued on in the second great awakening in Europe that enabled them to transform their culture? 
So first, in the book of Acts, we learn right away, what's the essence of original Christianity? You say, oh no, Pastor Jeff, please not this. Can we just move on? I know what the essence of Christianity... No, you don't. No, you don't. Because if you did, and if I did and we did, our society wouldn't look the way it does now. We would have transformed it. Luke says in Acts 1... In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. If we did truly know all the things that Jesus did and began to teach, and they became a reality in our lives, and we really knew the essence of what he taught, really knew it and received it, then we would be impacting culture to a far greater degree than we are today. Folks, the problem is not society. The moral Social, political issues of Rome far exceeds our own. The problem is not the culture. The problem is, the real issue is that society has not yet seen true Christianity. You say, hold on, Pastor Jeff. You're going to go into an area I'm not comfortable with. So let me just take a deep breath. Give it to me straight. How do you know, Pastor Jeff, that real, the real issue is that society has not yet seen true Christianity? And here's the answer, because... Wherever Christianity has been truly understood on a widespread scale, it has become a dynamic force. And the reason it is not a dynamic force today is because too many people who attend church don't understand it yet. Have you seen Christianity doing what it did in the Roman Empire, what it did in the 18th century with, in Europe? Have you seen it sweeping up people into a peace and joy they had not previously known in the West? Anytime recently? Have you seen it running through a community where no life is left untouched? I've seen it in India and Africa. And that's why when I come back, you guys always say, man, I love it when you go away and come back because you're preaching. Wow. Well, it's because I saw something and then I lose it. I'm just like you. And I detest myself. Okay, pastor, what is the true essence? The true essence of Christianity is this. According to the first great awakening, Christianity is about what Jesus has done, not about what you've done. Now you say, hold on, we just, didn't we just go through? No, listen, because I'm still amazed at how many people, when I ask them to describe Christianity, will do so this way. I think it's about trying to be a good moral person. It's about helping the poor. It's about doing good things and right things. Really, you think that is the essence, the core essence of Christianity? And here's the clincher. People who describe Christianity in these terms also say the next statement that you will never hear in places where Christianity is sweeping up the masses, like in South America and India, parts of Asia and Africa. Because a person like this will say, I think Christianity, its essence is about trying to be good, do good things, give to the poor, live a good life. And then they will say this, but I also think there are other ways other than Jesus to reach God. And then they will say, just be good in your personal understanding of good. And that's what being a Christian really is. And that is what most people in churches in the West truly believe. Christianity is only one of the ways we can reach God. And that is precisely why Christianity is dead in many Western religious institutions. But Luke says Christianity is not about you being good. It's not about essentially you at all. It's ultimately about someone else and what he's done. And in Acts 1, this ancient text, verse 3 after his what? Suffering. He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Okay. What did Jesus do? He suffered. suffered. And most 
People will tell me, okay, Pastor Jeff, I got a problem right there. I don't need someone to suffer for me. I'm a decent person. I try to live a good moral life. Yes, I've had my moments, but I'm good to go. This is the story of most American Christians I meet. And Pew Research Center tells us that most Americans are religious, but not necessarily Christian. Religion, you want to control your own destiny by good works. You're confident in your own goodness, and it gives you a false sense of security. False because, one, you severely overestimate your own goodness, and two, you severely underestimate God's holiness, which puts you on the right side. Somehow you always are able to measure up. In fact, a major complaint that I receive from students in our universities across America is this. Pastor Jeff, I really like the Old Testament. It's really fun to read. And I especially like the Ten Commandments. I keep them. I'll let that go just for a moment. I like them because it's good for society. We know that. But Pastor Jeff, the Old Testament's also about those sacrifices, the blood, the guts, and the gore. I mean, what in heaven's name is that all about? You can't go into the temple without seeing blood or carnage. You always enter the temple with blood on your hands. These people are always sacrificing something. The animal rights people would have had a field day with the Old Testament people. Why all this blood and sacrifice? Why all the blood and sacrifice of Christ? Is it really necessary? And the answer is yes. Dr. Tim Keller says, the wrong things we do leave a residue between us and God. You see, religious people do this. Well, God knows I mess up. He's a gracious God. He'll just forgive me. Now, here's the question. Could you say that in a court of law? Imagine a man steals a car, embezzles money, or even rapes a young woman. And he shows up in his day in court. And he looks at the judge and he says, judge, man, I'm very sorry what I've done. I'll do better. And the judge says, oh, good. Well, next case. <laughs> Is that justice for the victims of the crime? What the judge should say is, man, that's great. I'm glad you're sorry, but there is a residue. There's something left over. You mean well, and I'm, I'm glad, but I can't just let you go free. There's a residue. There's something to pay for. Common sense tells you that if we can't run a society like that, how do you expect God to run a universe like that? Otherwise, there would be no deterrent for criminal activity, nor would there be justice for the victims. If you would impeach a judge for letting criminals go free like that, how would you expect to have a God like that? God says, instead, in the gospel, and this is what the first Christians do, look at your humanity toward your neighbor and your unfaithfulness to your creator. Maybe you're sorry for it. Maybe you're trying to do better, but there's a residue. Your offense must be paid for if universe and, the, and, and justice are to survive. And that's why Jesus suffered, right, folks? Death and destruction has a right to take every single one of us. We're on the wrong side of justice. But Jesus stands between us and it and says, I will not let you take my friends. I will not let you take my brothers and sisters. And that is absolutely wonderful news. But this, even as good as it is, it is a struggle for religious people. Let's go back to the friends that I talked about. I keep the Ten Commandments. Really? So I ask him, have you ever lied? He said, well, yeah, everybody has. What does that make you? A liar. Well, no, no. I said, have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. What does that make you? A thief. You ever cheated at anything? Well, yeah, everybody. What does that make you? So you're a liar, a thief, and a cheater. And you keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> 
The first great awakening began when the first Christians realized that all the malice of death and destruction we deserve, because we all violate the Ten Commandments, all of us, came down on Christ, who became our legal representative before the God of the universe and paid the penalty you and I deserve. The barrier has gone. The debt is paid. Folks, listen, you and I are on the receiving end of the most staggering level of grace and generosity in the universe because God loves us. Now, we could stop there, but the essence of early Christianity that caused the Great Awakening went to the second thing that we learn in the ancient text, which is that not only did he suffer, but he rose from the dead. Acts 1-2 says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, there is a tremendous amount of chauvinism toward ancient people from modern people. Well, of course those IQ challenge people believed in a resurrection. They're primitive people. They believe in things like that. Then you obviously haven't read the ancient text. None of the disciples were expecting a resurrection. And even when it happened, they didn't believe it. They went to the tomb and saw the stone rolled away and the linen lying there, and they still said, gee, I wonder what happened. <laughs> they were not expecting a resurrection. When they saw it, they called it a hallucination. Even when they saw the empty tomb. And this is not oversimplification. It's an understanding. Listen, the Jews were less likely to believe in a resurrection than any of you in this room. The Jews believed in a transcendent God who would never become human. No way. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition passed down through generation after generation. No Jew would have ever believed that an individual could be resurrected. That's why Jesus had to go and physically appear to the disciples. Otherwise, they ain't never going to believe it. And even then, Thomas said, let me touch your hands and feet. Is this you? It would be easier to convince most of you of a resurrection than it would be for Jesus to convince them. The question is, why did Jesus have to convince them? And why was it part of the Great Awakening? Because it speaks to the essence of Christianity. He had to convince them. Otherwise, you could say, well, we don't need a resurrection. We have Jesus' teaching. Yeah, but if you're saved by following Jesus' teaching, then you're right back into religion. This is what you have done. This is what I have. This is what we have done. We think the essence is being good, doing good things, feeding the poor, helping the needy. The problem is, if you think you're saved by following the teachings of Jesus, then you're going to look down your nose at people who do not perform it as well as you do, which means you will not transform society. You will separate from it and you will spit at it. And you will condemn it because somehow you think you're better than everyone else. You can't transform culture by standing on the outside looking in. All the power that we have to deceive ourselves, thinking somehow we don't say it out loud. Hey, God, I did this. I've earned this. Now pay up. But the first Christians of the first great awakening understood that the essence of Christianity is about what Christ has done for you. He suffers, he dies, he returns so that you will know, hey, if I came back from the dead, you can trust what I said to be true. Which is why in Acts 1, Luke writes, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now Luke is trying to tell us something here, isn't he? What's he trying to tell us? You notice that word began? The founder of every other religion has already done everything he or she's going to do. They've already said everything they're going to say, done everything they're going to do because they're dead. Luke says, Jesus is alive. And oh man, 
He's just begun to do what he's going to do because part of the essence of original Christianity is that not only did Jesus die, not only did he rise from the dead, but he ascended. He was taken up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which means this. Jesus goes up not to get away from us, but to continue what he started through us. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, how can I make this power a reality in my life where I can transform culture? Here's the answer we learn. You cannot receive the awakening power of the Holy Spirit unless you believe the claims of Jesus Christ are objectively true. Say, wait a minute, what? You must believe that what Jesus did, said, and taught is objectively true for everyone, not just you. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will break this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 